Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You might take your Bibles and turn over to Judges uh, chapter 13. We're going back into the Old Testament this morning and we're going to look at a famous Old Testament story. And I say a famous Old Testament story because oftentimes these accounts in the Old Testament are often looked on as children's stories. Uh, when you turn and read about Noah and the ark or Daniel and the lion's den, uh, Jonah and the whale, all those are stories that really captivate a child's imagination. And perhaps you grew up in a church where you heard those stories from uh, the time you started in uh, a Sunday school class on up. I think sometimes the unfortunate thing about these Old Testament stories is they stay, in our minds, children's stories. Oftentimes we've heard them and we never go back to them and look at what I think are the adult themes that are there. Uh, the truths that are in the Old Testament, uh, oftentimes in the story part, just the storyline, are rated G. But when you go back as an adult, you find out that they can also be rated R because they contain some reality to them that we as adults can profit by in a great way. You know, this morning I'm going to be talking about the life of Samson. And when you probably hear the word Samson, a number of childhood images begin to dance around in your head. Uh, you probably think of this incredible figure like Hulk Hogan that comes immediately to your mind. Or, or perhaps uh, uh, you think of the long hair that was so popular in the 60s that uh, Samson probably had hanging around his shoulders. Uh, maybe you think of the uh, beautiful barber that he used to go see oftentimes, Delilah. Maybe those kind of images come back into your, to your mind. Uh, the question I would like to ask is, do you see the adult theme of the life of Samson? See, Samson was an adult, and he lived a real life, and his life gives us rich insight. The theme that I'm going to camp on this morning that he gives rich insight is one that we need to take a hard look at, and, and I don't want to be hard in any way this morning. I just want to speak about reality, and perhaps by the end we can get some life from the life of this man, because he tells us a lot about addiction, the life of an addict. You know, the last 10 years in America have been characterized as the decade of addiction. Went through the me decade. Now in the last 10 years, we've gone through the decade of addiction. And I bet every person in this room knows an addict or has lived with an addict or maybe is an addict. It's a universal problem in our country today. Self-help philosopher Melody Beatty said, and by the way, she's, according to Time Magazine, an American phenomenon on, on alcoholism and codependency. She speaks before packed audiences. She's had a best-selling book called Codependency No More that's been on the best-selling list for 115 weeks. That tells you something. She says that in her figures, there are more than 80 million Americans who are emotionally involved with an addict or addicted themselves. And not just to alcohol or drugs, but to a wide variety of things, whether it be sex, food, work, shopping, 
or anything. We all of us, we have this kind of need to depend on something. And in a nation that's lost its concept of God, we've looked for cheap substitutes. You know, we went through a freedom to be me 60s generation. And over time, that has evolved slowly, but very deliberately into a generation of enslavement and obsession and bondage in the 90s. And we see the casualties everywhere among us. Maybe we even feel like a casualty because there's a lot of pain, real pain, in addiction. A lot of us have heard a great deal. What I want you to know is that's nothing new to the Scriptures. Scriptures knew that all along. And, and in chapter 13, it gives us 21 centuries ago the life of an addict and how that could be changed. And we're going to look at it here this morning. Let's look at chapter 13, the first seven verses, because they introduce us to the background of an addict. In chapter 13, it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and had borne no children. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren, and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drinks. Even back then the Bible was saying, if you're pregnant, don't drink. Nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. The woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now to catch you up, we're looking in the book of Judges, and it's named Judges because the book describes seven judges who ruled over Israel uh, during a time where they were just a tribal state. Samson happens to be the seventh judge of these seven judges. And as you saw in verse 1, the oppressor at this particular period of time was the nation of the Philistines. And in the midst of that oppression uh, that came upon Israel as they continued to walk out of step with God's ways, God raises up a seventh and last judge, and his name is Samson. Now, Samson is a, a unique figure, and, and it introduces us to him in these opening verses because he, he comes by way of a very godly couple. In a sense, it almost typifies, in a sense, the Christmas birth story, doesn't it? This barren woman who's conceived with this announcement by an angel. And uh, they come upon this couple, and the angel announces that you're going to have a, a son, and he's going to be a special kind of son. In fact, he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. Now, what does that mean? You see that mentioned to you there in, in, verses, uh, in verse 7. A Nazarite from the womb. If you go back in the Old Testament law, you find out that a Nazarite was a person who would set themselves aside for a season, a season of time, to give themselves wholeheartedly to the devotion of the service of God. It was if you were to say to yourself, I'm going to stop my job for a while, 
and I'm going to go on a missions trip for the church, and I'm going to give myself totally to this work of God until it's finished. The way a Nazarite would publicly signal that he was about to go upon this service is that he would do three things, and it was listed in the Old Testament law. Some of it's mentioned here. The first thing is that he would not touch during the season of service wine or any strong drink. A second thing is that he wouldn't cut his hair. The third thing is that he would not touch any dead animal, any dead carcass, whether it be an animal or a person. He would stay away from dead things. Now, he would do that because it would publicly demonstrate that he was set aside unto service to God. Samson, though, was different than any other Nazarite before or after. Because Samson was set aside from the womb for life. He was the most unique Nazarite who ever lived. And so he grew up not touching any dead thing, not ever cutting his hair or drinking wine as he grew up under this godly couple. Now, those Nazarite vows were also symbols of spiritual realities about his life. For instance, the fact that he didn't touch any dead thing. You know, in the New Testament, we're told that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Sin, trespasses, those are dead things. Living the old way of life before we became a Christian. Those are dead things. And once you're given into service to God, you don't go back and practice the old things you used to practice. That's the old life. Uh, drink, strong drink. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 5, we're not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. Samson grew up with a symbol, not drinking wine, as a way to remind him he was not to ever depend upon natural resources for stimulation, for joy, for happiness. He was to depend upon supernatural resources. The Spirit of God that gives permanent satisfaction and joy. He wasn't to cut his hair. Uh, he was to grow it the length of a woman. Now in Old Testament times, to grow your hair a length of a woman was a shameful thing. It was a rugged, agrarian type society. And, and to identify with a woman who was physically, and women still are, not as strong biologically, muscularly, was a sign of weakness. But he would grow his hair long, not because he was trying to demonstrate weakness of a physical nature, but his long hair was to indicate weakness of a spiritual nature. That is, the job God was calling him to do, to liberate Israel from the Philistines in his own strength, he was not able to do. But he was to depend upon God's strength. And his long hair was to always say, Samson, in and of yourself, you're not able, but you must trust me. I mentioned those things right here at the start because those things are true of a Christian. Because when we become a Christian, when we're born again, in a sense we become a Nazarite, set aside. That's what, that's what the word sanctify means. That's why we're called the elect of God. We're, we're set aside and we're not to depend upon natural resources, but supernatural. We're not to go back to the old life, but pursue the new life. We're not to count on our own strength because we're not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, Paul said. But our adequacy is always from God. I can't be a good husband on my own. I've got to have God's help. I can't live a moral life. No one can live a moral life consistently in and of their own strength. They've got to have God's help. And that's what Samson grew up as a Nazarite from the womb. One set aside from service to God. He was very unique in that capacity. I say all that because he was an extra special young man. You know, as you go through, and we could read the rest of chapter 13, we won't. But he had godly parents. He had a godly calling. And if you'll notice in verse 24 of chapter 13, God anointed him in some very special ways, blessed him throughout his childhood. It says, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up, and the Lord 
blessed him. Now I hope at this point, now that I've given you the background of this young man, that you're probably wondering if you look at your outline, because your outline says that this first section I'm speaking about is the background of an addict. And you're saying, I don't see it. I don't see the background of an addict. I, I don't see in chapter 13 any physical abuse. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any poor parenting here. He certainly doesn't have a bad environment, not with these godly parents. There's no love deprivation. There's no substance abuse of any kind here in chapter 13. And you know something? You're right. Samson had a real, wholesome, healthy upbringing. And he had advantages with the blessing of God that most of us will never have. So how is this the background of an addict? Well, we'll go on to see this, but I make all that background so that you can write one statement on your sheet of paper. And this is the statement. Addicts come from good homes too. Addicts come from good homes too. Some of you may have seen the video of James Dobson interviewing Ted Bundy the night before he was executed in the electric chair for the gross crimes that he committed in a, in a number of serial murders where he tortured young women and then executed them. And I watched that film with a number of other people in my community group in my home. And one of the things that came across over and over and over again as the camera drew up close to Bundy's face, a face of death, by the way, in just a few hours, he would say, I want the people out there to know that I grew up in a good home. I had good parents and they loved me. We went to church every week. My brothers and sisters are Christians even to this day. I had a healthy, wholesome, stable, caring, loving upbringing. But I'm here now. Addicts come from good homes too. So how did Samson move from Judges 13 into the lifestyle of an addict? That's what we're going to look at in the next few chapters that are before us here. Let's start by looking at chapter 14. And by the way, there's probably a period of time that has passed between the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. And Samson is now in the full bloom of, of manhood. And he's got this incredible strength, this incredible blessing on his life. He was probably incredibly intelligent as well. And yet look what happens in chapter 14. It says, Then Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. That's the enemy, by the way. And so he came back and he told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. His father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty intimidating, doesn't it? And it probably was to, to his dad as he spoke those words. Samson is revealing to us in these opening verses not the fact that he was just blessed, but he is a man. And every man and every woman has a dark side. And what you see in chapter 14 
is the dark side that comes despite a good upbringing. Now, a dark side is something every person in this room has. And we get this dark side sometimes because of the choices that we make. Sometimes it's what we have inherited just from that old Adamic nature that the Scripture says is passed down through parent to child. And so we're born with certain weaknesses and inclinations. And I'm sure Samson was born with some of those inclinations as well. But he also made some poor choices. And here in chapter 14 is one of those. Regardless of the package of weaknesses we possess, they can be overcome or they can overcome us if we encourage them. And if we encourage them, they will render us useless to the service that God has set us, the elect, aside to accomplish in His world. Now I want you to notice one other thing. When we speak of addiction here in this passage, again, don't be thinking just of drug and alcohol. I'll use a few illustrations like that, but I want you to think much broader than that because there are a number of weakness traps in every life. Your weakness could be work. Your weakness could be winning. And winning could be fed to the point that you have to win at all cost. Your weakness could be control. You could be an addict of control. That you've got to have your life so arranged and organized and the people so arranged and organized around you that it's just one obsession and enslavement to control your environment. Your obsession could be power and you're driven by it. Or eating. It could be image. How people perceive you. And you spend and, and expend all your energy trying to get people to think good about you on the front side. Your addiction could be health. Recreation. It could be constantly going out and doing things to entertain, to get that jogger's high because there's that escape from the painful responsibilities of life. It could be that. And it could bring debilitating responses to those around you. It could be money. It could be pornography. It could be recreation. It could be independence. There's a whole shelf of addictions. You can pick any one of them. And all of us have certain weaknesses along these particular lines and they can all corrupt God's call on your life. An honorable life. Well, I think it's obvious what Samson's weakness was. It was women. And not just any kind of women. If you'll notice in verse 2, it says, I saw a woman. That You might just circle that word woman there because it's not the normal Hebrew word for woman. You would think he went down to this Philistine city and saw this young, eligible, single girl. And in Hebrew, there's a word for that. But there's a different word here. The word that's used here, and especially the way Samson addresses her in verse 4, it comes across as much more earthy. And the term really does mean an experienced, sultry, sensuous, seductive kind of woman. That's what caught Samson's eye. That's what turned him on. It was a turn on that he couldn't resist. And what's worse here is she's a Philistine of all things. What the, what the law of God in the Old Testament said was wrong for Israel. That they weren't, going to, they, they weren't going to take on foreign women. They were going to marry within their own nation and preserve their identity. And yet, in this little scenario of three verses, you begin to see that none of that mattered to Samson. He shows his first step in the lifestyle of an addict. And you can write this down in letter A. Here's what he does. He trivializes his weakness. 
And that's always the first step. It's the first step in any life here. You say, what I'm doing is no big deal. See, his father said, hey, don't you sure you want to do this? And he comes across like it's no big deal, like I can handle it. And he kind of brushes it off and as, as almost irrelevant. But I'm strong enough. Look at me. I can handle I'm a big boy now. I also want you to note in verse 3 that his father and his mother, these godly parents, they try to offer to this now man an alternative. How about a daughter of the sons of Israel? How about one of us? And you know, there's a principle even in that, and it's this. Addicts always think they can handle their weaknesses, and then when the people that love them the most come around and try to show them that that's a weakness, they listen to them the least. Isn't that true? If you think about people that you know who've fallen into what I call real bondage with addiction, there will always be a group of people, loved ones, wife or husband, children, friends, who have been for months, maybe even years, telling them, you got a problem here. And they trivialize it. It's not a big deal. I can handle it. And they're offering suggestions like, maybe you need to go look somewhere else. But see, the people who love them the most, they listen to the least. That's what Samson did here. He listened to the people closest to him the least. No dad, get her for me. So we go from kind of trivializing a weakness to the next step, and that's where he begins to be careless in his lifestyle. Now he's still a young man, and he moves out, and notice in verse 5, he goes down to Timnah with his father, and he's going to, uh, to, to get this woman. And as he's going down there, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily because a lion comes out to him. I mean, he faces all alone this, this great lion, and we get an opportunity to see how really strong God has equipped Samson to be. Probably no man like him in all of history. And in this kind of uh, barehanded fight with this lion, he tears this lion in two. What I think that illustrates is the power that was available in God to Samson. He had the power of God available to him. But here's what I want you to see. When it came to his weakness, he never drew on that power. That, that weakness was always set aside as something that was not going to be addressed. He wanted God's power to, to, to take on certain responsibilities, but when it came up to a weakness, he turned off God's power. And he kind of said to himself, hey, I can handle it. It's no big deal. I can work through that. And then his life begins to be careless. If we went on to the rest of the chapter, chapter 14, if we went to look at this, we can see that for a time he practices this kind of careless lifestyle, but it leads to two things, the next two things on your outline. It leads to conflict and it leads to tragedy. Because he goes down and he takes this young woman as his wife, goes through this marriage ceremony where he carelessly sets aside his vow to not drink. He has this drunken feast. The drunken feast ends up in a brawl. The brawl ends up with him exerting this God-given power in a very negative way. He ends up killing a bunch of people. Then revenge is extracted on the very new home that he was going to set up. And when you come to verse 6 of chapter 15, he loses the very wife that he wanted. Notice it says, Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they're referring to the slaughter that Samson uh, caused on the Philistine people. And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. And then it says, Then the Philistines came up and burned Samson's wife and her father with fire. 
You know, that's often how weaknesses that are kind of carelessly indulged in ultimately lead to, don't they? It starts out real simple. I can handle it. And then you go through a few scenarios where you, where you, where you do. You kind of go out there and you do what you want to do and there's no accountability at that point and you kind of get away with it. But then eventually, that accountability comes back on you. It finally comes to call and payment is due and there's conflict. And how many homes have been lost to addiction? A lot of them. How many people have been exposed because they thought they could keep on kind of nursing and feeding that weakness and they thought, payment will never come due. You know, when Samson went down originally, you know, he said, I want this woman. He went and did it, but there was no payment in the beginning. There was on the backside. You know, some of you probably read about Richard Berenson, uh, the brilliant president of the American University of Washington. He's world-renowned as a lecturer, as a scholar. Uh, but you know, Berenson had a trivialized dark side that he carelessly indulged in for years. As the president of this great university, he'd call women and make obscene phone calls. There, there, was, there was something wrong in his life. There was a dark side that needed help. But Berenson would call people just randomly around town, talk to them about certain sadomasochistic sex acts, and then get away with it and go back looking like a brilliant lecturer. But you know, there came a time where he got too careless. Happened to call up a woman one night in Washington, D.C., or really she lived in Virginia, and she happened to be the wife of a policeman who worked for the sex vice squad. And so she kind of lured him into some discussions until they could do a phone tap. And then the rest is history, and you can read about it in Newsweek or Time or a paper. It's been a tragedy. But see, he thought he could nurse that and there would be no accountability, no payment due, no conflict, no tragedy. And what a lie! When you nurse the dark side, not only do you not live an honorable life, not only do you not fulfill your Nazarite vow being set aside to God for His service, but ultimately there's always conflict and tragedy that results. And that was certainly true in Samson's case, by the time you get to chapter 15, all hell is breaking loose in Samson's life. I think so much so that he finally goes back to God. He kind of runs back to his spiritual moorings for a season because of this exposure. He's moved from weakness to carelessness to conflict to tragedy. So he goes back and he renews his calling and he says, I'm going to be a judge. I'm going to be a good judge. And so it says at the end of chapter 15, last verse, it says, so he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. He renewed his calling to God. But here's what I want you to hear me say. There's one thing that he didn't do. Yes, he got back to judging Israel, what he should have done all along. But the one thing that he didn't do, he didn't address ruthlessly the sensuous weakness that was in his life. Now I want you to think with me about weaknesses in your life. Times where you've gone out and done something you know you're not supposed to do, some area that you know is going to lure you even further if you feed it. Maybe there have been times you've gotten away with it just narrowly. Maybe there's been times you've been caught and the person who caught you graciously said, I'm not going to expose you, but don't do it again. You know what happens in moments like that? Because that happened with all that conflict in chapter 15. If you're not careful, what you say is, okay, boy, you feel so good that you're not going to be exposed. And then you dress up the exterior of your life, but rather than ruthlessly address this weakness, you know what you do with it? You just kind of safely tuck it away in a corner. You don't really deal with it. You kind of just 
Stick it away for a season where you can come back to it. That's what Samson did. Samson had a time where, yeah, he, he felt like he just barely got out with his life in chapter 15. He went back to doing what God told him to do, but he never addressed this dark side in a radical, ruthless way. And that brings us to chapter 16. Look at verse 1. Now Samson went down to Gaza, and he saw a harlot there, and he went into her. You know, I personally believe this statement is a window into Samson's overall lifestyle. And what I want you to know is though verse 1 just records this as a single incident, I personally have no doubt that during the 20-year reign that Samson had over the Philistines, from time to time he would secretly take out this weakness and he would go indulge in it for a while. And what verse 1 is just simply letting us in on through a little window is it's just saying Samson has never dealt with this area of his life. And so this area in chapter 16 is going to start to grow more and more. And as in the cases before, if you look at verses 2 and 3, it brings conflict. He goes down to Gaza and the people of Gaza see Samson, who's this uh, uh, Israeli that they want to do away with. It leads to a very dangerous situation. And he gets out, not by the hair on his chinny-chin-chin, but by the long hair on his head. Because he, he takes his immense power and breaks through these walls and says in this incredible way that he took the gate, lifted the gates on his shoulders and carried them away. Now that's a strong man. But there's also a principle here that you need to hear me talk about. An adult theme. You know what he was using to escape from his sin? He was misusing his gifts. He was taking the very gifts that God had given him to be a righteous ruler, and he was using that to narrowly get himself out of desperate sin situations. We've seen that, by the way. We, we've seen guys on TV, religious individuals who have tremendous persuasive ability, gifted by God to preach the gospel, right? And they fall into sin and they get exposed. And what do they do with their persuasive abilities? They use those same persuasive abilities to convince everybody around them that they're okay, that they're not really an addict, that they don't really have a dark side, that this really isn't a problem. And everybody goes with those gifts, okay, and they escape when they need help. See, you can use the gifts God has given you. You can take those gifts and you can twist them and you can use those as a way just to kind of indulge your weakness and escape the rest of your life. You can use it that way and pervert their original intent. Well, that's what Samson did. And, and, and in doing that, what Samson did is begin to show us this that now he's this full-fledged addict. Because notice, his life from, four, from 14, 15, and 16, he's going from this, situ this scenario, sin, conflict, and tragedy, narrow escape. Sin, conflict, and tragedy, narrow escape. That was his lifestyle here for a while. By the way, you know what? That's a formal definition of addiction. Let me tell you why they define addiction in the medical books. It says, addiction is the habitual practice of a behavior to control one's mood in spite of the fact that the behavior creates repeated problems. Addiction is this habitual practice where you kind of escape from the painful responsibilities of life, in Samson's case, ruling 
That was a real responsible position. And you go off and kind of get a mood lifter for a while, even though it, re it brings repeated problems and conflict. But there he is, over and over again. Does that ring a bell with some of you? Maybe about your own lives? Maybe that's something that's going on in your own particular life? Maybe you're not at the stage of full-fledged addiction, but maybe you're trivializing a weakness. Maybe there's already a little bit of conflict around. You need to listen. Because these things are real important. Because this isn't the end of the lifestyle. The addiction phase is just two phases from the end. Because there's two more extreme phases beyond addiction that we're going to see Samson fall in now. The first is what I call the insanity phase. The insanity phase. Because notice what happens here in verse 4. See, he's had this experience with the harlot. And then in verse 4 it says, And after this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Here's Delilah. Now, by the way, the word woman is the same word in chapter 14. It's this sultry vixen. It's not just an ordinary maiden. It's someone who would really catch his sensuous eye. That's what Delilah was. And look at verse 5. It says, And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and then we'll give you eat. We'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. I kind of laugh when I read this because really here we are in the 11th century B.C. and we've got a Marion Berry sting going on. Except it's being pulled off by the Philistines on Samson. And so Delilah takes him up. She says, okay, I'll be the sting. So look at verse 6. So Delilah says to Samson, when he comes in one of his liaison affairs here, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. <laughs> Does that sound like a strange statement? You say, I thought you said this guy was intelligent. And she says this three more times. She says, hey, tell me where your strength is. And he kind of plays and toys with her, you know, in these repeated affairs. See, he's in this cycle now with her. He's really locked in. And she's asking them, him this outright. But you know what? He doesn't make the connection anymore. And you know why he doesn't make the connection? Just like Marion Barry didn't make the connection. See, there comes a phase in your life where you're just blinded. Things can be so apparent to everybody else, but they're not apparent to you. And here he is in these regular visits to the, to the Sorek Valley with Delilah. And that, those visits, those sensuous encounters, become a reality all on their own. And the true reality that's around this is totally blurred out to the place that she could ask him questions like this, and he would make no connection, really. He just wanted pleasure, just don't bother me with the pain. Just give me the pleasure. That brings us to verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. I mean, here he is. And he finally bottoms out with this constant badgering because you know what she's inflicting on him? Emotional pain by nagging him. And finally, he gives his secret of his strength away because he didn't want any pain of any kind. That's the sign of an addict. 
Don't give me the pain. I don't want to think about my responsibilities. They're now driven. See, he's in that phase of insanity by pleasure. So just to get away from that pain, in verse 17, he finally tells her. By the way, Delilah's name means weakness. He tells Miss Weakness, a razor has never come on my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from the mother's womb. And if I am shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so she immediately hops on that because she knows he's speaking the truth and she calls on the Philistines. And then look at verse 21. The Philistines come, they seize Samson and they gouge out his eyes. How graphic and what a true picture of where Samson really was. He was blind all along anyway, wasn't he? But they gouge out his eyes symbolically to indicate his own blindness and they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. <laughs> Samson, this incredible hulk, gifted, talented, called by God. And here he is in the final stage of the lifestyle of an addict. It's called bondage. Bondage. He's blind, he's bound, he's powerless before his enemies, and he's been reduced to walking in circles around a grinder. What a picture of where addiction finally ends. What a futile, futile way of life. He's lost everything to this goddess called pleasure. Just like some people lose everything to the goddess called image, or the god called strength, or the god called food, or the god called control. You can reach these points. And Samson reached this point. It's, it's a scene that's played out, ladies and gentlemen, all over America today. I read this note by Paul Mayotte, a Massachusetts teenager, he wrote part to his friends and part to his brother. He said this, I hate myself. I can't believe I did this to myself. My mom and dad were so right when they said one bad habit leads to another. I can't understand why I'm not dead already. I've tried enough with cocaine. My lungs are gone. My nose is shot. I'm on my last roundup. So Tom, that's his brother, so Tom... I hope you let some kids read this letter. I was a good kid once, once upon a time, a long, long time ago. I brought all this on myself, and I'm sorry. See, that's a statement of bondage. Paul Mayotte went ahead in his pickup truck and shot himself in the head. He ended it because it was a life of futility. It had gone from an honorable life to a dishonorable life, from a life that could have had passion and meaning to a life that was barren and empty and dead. That's where he ended. And that's where Samson's life could have ended. But it doesn't. But here's what I want you to hear me say. This is the lifestyle of an addict. Let me just review it real quickly. It starts with trivializing a weakness. People see it in others. And they try to tell you about it, especially loved ones, but you don't want to hear it. Then you become careless and you indulge in those careless actions. Then it starts bringing some conflict and tragedy. But you keep going and repeating that cycle over and over. And then you're in the addict stage. But the addict stage, uncontrolled and unaddressed, moves then to insanity. And insanity, finally, to bondage. And then sometimes, in bondage, people finally wake up. We read it all the time in the newspapers, especially with 
certain public figures, movie stars, athletes. But look what it took. A humiliating crash, the loss of everything, public exposure and ridicule to bring an addict to his senses. It doesn't have to be that way. But oftentimes it is. It certainly took that for Samson, I'm sure, as he was walking around this grinder. And then one day when the Philistines called him out so they could just laugh at him. I'm sure it finally brought him to his senses. I mean, notice up in verse 25 of chapter 16, it happened uh, one day when the Philistines were all gathered for a party in high spirits. They said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So we can laugh at him. Make fun of how he's destroyed his life. And Samson could have come out there in his humiliation and just walked around. But Samson does something at this point in his life that he did only one other time in his life which he should have been doing his whole life. He calls out to God to help him. Finally gets at the bottom. Notice verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. That's what a Nazarite should have been saying all along. He finally bottoms out. But what a good place to be. And you know what's wonderful about this? Is that when he calls upon God, even at this point in his life, with all that he's done, with all the mistakes he's made, and here's the good news, God responds to him. God empowers him. Bill Wilson, who's the founder of AA, uttered the same kind of prayer in 1935. There he said, I humbly offered myself to do to God, to do with me as he would, I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction, and I admitted for the first time that of myself, I was nothing. You know what a Nazarite vow should have said to Samson his whole life? You're nothing. You know what the Christian should know more than any other truth? You're powerless to do any of the things that are written in this book apart from a close and intimate and fervent walk with me. That's where the power is. Well, Samson called upon God to do this, and his life ends at this point. If you'll notice in verse 29, remember he walked out and grabbed those two pillars, and they were all up above having this party. All the lords of the Philistines who had ruled over Israel, and Samson in his great strength, now that he's been strengthened by God, pushes those pillars apart. It all comes tumbling down, and it says in verse 30, that the dead who were killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his whole life. But here's the point. Because this is something very important to notice. Samson's life, unlike Paul Mayotte's, ends in honor, not dishonor, and not disgrace. It ends with this great crash liberating Israel from its Persecutors, because all the leadership was wiped out. What he was called to do all along. So his life ends in liberating Israel. He doesn't die in futility. He dies with meaning. And he ends up offering his life not to women at the end, but to God. Boy, that's something powerful in that. What all this says to me is that regardless of where any of us are, and we all are somewhere along this line. What it says to me is it's never too late, never, to recover. It's never too late to come back from a weakness, to make 
what was disgraceful, honorable again. It's never too late to get back to the purposes of God. It's never too late to call out to God because if you call out to Him, He will hear you anywhere, anytime, anyplace. That's what it says to me. And it also says to me that it is too late for any of us here as long as we protect our weaknesses and are unwilling to admit them to release them or to address them. That's what it tells me. Now let me ask you some questions. Are you on your way to being a Nazarite or an addict? See, really, there's just two paths, generally speaking. You're either going to be set aside and your gifts and talents and abilities are going to be used in an honorable way in this city. Or they're going to be used in a way that's ultimately going to enslave and oppress you and hurt a lot of people around you. One or the other. Is there a weakness that you are feeding? And you don't have to be down at the bondage stage. You can be right at stage one. Just a weakness that someone's pointed out to you as a weakness. Your anger, your need to control, the way you eat, what you watch on TV or at the movies, and somebody's saying to you, you know, I don't think that's good for you. And you go, I can handle it. Don't bug me. Think about where you are. Think about making a difference. Think about leaving, living what this world desperately needs, an honorable life, full of integrity, set apart to God. And I'm not talking about going to be a missionary or being a preacher. I'm talking about living the Christian life. You know, when I was growing up, Christmas was always kind of bittersweet. And the reason it was bittersweet is because my dad, as many of you know, was an alcoholic. And when the Christmas season would roll around, it would always kind of trigger some things in him. And I, I can't psychoanalyze him now, but just a little bit that I got to know my dad, I'm sure that my dad had very great difficulty interacting with people. And you know, when the Christmas season comes around, what do you do? You have parties. And we used to have, I remember growing up, we had family all in my hometown, aunts, uncles, cousins, and we'd come together. And I'm sure that the pressure of that social dialogue, the responsibility of just sharing yourself was painful to my dad. Uh, we weren't real wealthy or anything like that, so I'm sure there were financial pressures. And, and trying to stand up to those unique financial pressures that come around the Christmas season was probably difficult for him. And then the fact that it was religious. My dad wasn't religious. That was tough. Because, you know, my mom would want to haul out, you know, the star and have a Christmas story and all that. And I can just imagine how that must have, must have felt. Because he might have wanted to be responsible, but the pain of being responsible was too much. So he would go get a mood lifter. He would drink. So all through Christmas, my dad was drunk all the time. That's how I remember him, just sitting over there in the sofa, drunk, while we went about our Christmas life. You know, Christmas morning would come, and we'd come down, and there'd be presents there. And uh, my mom did a great job during those days, and, and I don't remember it just as negative. It, was, it had a lot of positives, but I remember opening those presents, and you know how it feels when you finish the presents, all of a sudden you just kind of crash, and is this all there is to life, and those kind of things. You go through that, but we had, we, we had fun at those points, but we had those post-Christmas depressions. But, you know, looking back on it, 
there was a gift that could have been given that would have transcended that post-Christmas depression. May I fantasize for a moment? It would have been wonderful for me to have come down on Christmas Day in front of that tree and had my dad sit us around as a family and just looked us in the eye and said, I want to tell you, I'm an alcoholic. I am. It's a great weakness in my life. And here's what I want you to know. I'm going to look to God for help. I am. And I'm going to draw upon the resources God has provided to help me work through this very difficult process. It's going to be painful, but I need you. I want you to know as a young man, that would have been a Christmas that would have lasted a long time past 12 noon. And I wouldn't have thought less of my dad. I would have thought worlds more of my dad. I would have loved to have hugged him in that moment and said, thanks. Thanks for being honest, for teaching me a life of honesty, because dad, I have weaknesses too. You want to give your wife great Christmas present, men? Or maybe ladies to your husband or one of you to your children or maybe some of you younger people to your friends around you? You want to give them a present that transcends all the others? Why not admit what I'm struggling with? Why not come to the place that I'm not trying to just live under the addiction of an image and just say, you know, I got a, I got a problem here and I need help. And I'm going to look to God and I'm not going to just put it aside. I'm going to deal ruthlessly with it because I want to live an honorable life. I want to live a life of integrity. I don't want to live a life of secrets. When I go to my grave, I did some good things, but behind it all was a legacy of lies and cheats and secrecy and sin. I want to die a pure man, pure woman. But I'm also weak. And I've got holes. It's okay to admit that. Here's what I want you to know, because this is called the family and addiction. I want us to be able to admit it. We're not good. We're all weak. We all got problems. Let's embrace each other in love and admit it. And help each other live an honorable life for the glory of God. Let's stand and pray. And let's bow just for a moment and maybe this can be a, a, a silent moment where you can ask God what your next step is. I've offered some suggestions but that's between you and Him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.